Okay, who showed up last Sunday night here? Uh, I'm sorry. We had our baptism last Sunday night, and we were closed. And so, but we're back open. A um, couple of people called. I always put a sign on the door, and I forgot to put a sign on the door, so it was my bad. Tonight we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 28, if you'll turn there in your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 28. We're going to be continuing on through Isaiah. I would imagine we'll go through Jeremiah and through Lamentations. Um, Thursday, I was going to go to 2 Kings. We finished 1 Kings a year or two ago, but um, instead of the Lord just impressed upon my heart, we're going to go through the Gospel of John. It's been a little while since we've gone through a Gospel, and so Thursday nights we'll be going through the Gospel of John, and then we'll be continuing going through the Epistles, um, all the way through to the book of Revelation. I don't know if we're going to do the book of Revelation when we get there. I've done it twice already, but hey, maybe the third time will be the charm and the rapture will come. You never know. Isaiah chapter 28. Now, we're kind of entering into another block of scriptures that the Lord is using back in the day and using in our lives even today. So the next few weeks, we'll be looking at a series of woes, really six of them. Woes are warnings of impending judgments because of the lack of obedience, the lack of obedience to God's Word. Now, God does not expect the Gentile or the unbeliever to be obedient to His Word because He does not know His Word. But how much more so should the children of light be obedient to the Word of God? And so these judgments, these woes are going to be specifically directed and generally to us as well, but specifically to Jerusalem. We're going to look at them in six steps, just one today. Chapter 28 is woe to wanton rulers. Chapter 29, verses 1 through 14, woe to the worthless worship. Number three is chapter 29, verses 15 through 24, woe to wily schemers. Fourthly is chapter 30, woe to willful children. Fifthly, or chapter 31, woe to worldly trust. And then sixthly, chapter 32, woe to the wicked oppressors. And so each of these woes is either directly or indirectly given as a warning to Judah, specifically Jerusalem. Jerusalem, city of God's people. And so we need to look at it from the perspective of the church to understand, not understand, but to relate these woes to us just as Jerusalem is a city of God's children or back then and was expected to do God's will. We're a church. We're a gathering together of God's people. So we need to view, we need to gain lessons from that perspective. Just as truly as God is speaking to His people back then, this is God's Word that speaks to us even today. Now look at it in general. Jerusalem. What does Jerusalem mean? How is it translated? City of peace. It's kind of funny, almost comical, if you will, because throughout history, that city has been anything but peaceful. It's always in the news. There's always somebody getting killed there, some protest or some uprising that is going on there, but any place that God places His presence upon is going to be a place of controversy and upheaval in this present world. And you need to look at that in your own life as God has placed His presence 
Ephesians chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, as God has placed his presence here in this temple, there's going to be upheaval in this world. I'm never going to truly fit into this world. Why? I'm just visiting this world. I'm a soldier. I'm just passing through. I'm not of this world. I am now of God's city that is in heaven. I am now of the Lord, and so I'm just never truly going to fit in. So if you're truly a born-again believer, you will see in Israel today and in your own life every single day the conflict that comes with those who are opposed to God. Psalm 122, verse 6 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Now keep in mind, the only avenue for peace to come to Jerusalem is at the return of Christ. It does no good for them to find peace and contentment today apart from God because they're still going to be condemned. I thank God for the upheaval because it's the upheaval that draws us to God and we pray that it would draw the Jew to God and and even the Arab or the Palestinian, whatever it might be. And so Jerusalem today, a very religious place. Now we've got all of these religions colliding in Jerusalem today. Jerusalem is the Lord's city, but the devil has come up against it. We've got Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all colliding there. We were at the, um, the Temple Institute. This is a group of Jews who have gotten together for the purpose of seeing the temple restored. I'd love to see the temple restored, and the temple is going to be restored in one day. But that's their purpose, uh, apart from the book of Revelation and everything that's happening or going to be happening. They're of the mindset to restore that, and I think God's got them in place and God is going to use them. And it's kind of a neat place to tour. I highly recommend it if you ever make it to Jerusalem. But it's interesting talking to the people because they're ultra-conservative Jews. And they understand this element of spiritual battle that goes on with those of Islam and, and all. And it, it, it was kind of kind of funny we were there and the guide it was a young girl about 30 was guiding us through and somebody raised she had any questions somebody raised their hand and said how come you just don't build the temple today and she kind of laughed under her breath and she says because anytime we have a holy place those people speaking of islam they come and they make it their own holy place so any place that we determine to be a holy place they're coming to be a holy place and this they say is the place where muhammad tied his donkey to a tree and all that other and she used a very, not very nice word. And again, you can see the animosity, and that does exist there, and it's always going to exist there. But why did the psalmist say to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Well, I agree we do need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but we need to understand what that means and all that encompasses. We're not going to go there tonight other than to say that Jerusalem will not find peace until the second coming of Christ. Oh, Jesus, come back quickly. Come back quickly. And the Lord is going to come back quickly, but to pray for peace apart from Christ's second coming is to do disservice even to the Jew. Our prayer needs to be that the Jew would get saved, that they would see Jesus as their Messiah and come to him in his salvation that he freely offers. And so today we're going to be looking at the concept of wanton rulers or reckless rulers. The prophet is going to have Jerusalem to look to its drunken sister, Samaria, as an example 
and as a warning. Ephraim is another title for the northern kingdom of Israel. And so the prophet is wanting, remember the prophet Isaiah, he is the court historian. So he has access to the court, to the king and everybody there. He's wanting them to look to their sister, the northern kingdom, Israel, and see the things that happened and the things that the Lord allowed and that they would understand that these things so easily, probably, possibly, and it will, happen to them. The Lord's desire is that Judah would see Ephraim and see their idolatry and realize and come to an understanding that they're going the same direction and that they would repent and that they would turn from their ways. Oh, that the United States would do the same thing. That we would see the history of nations and see the direction that we are going. And we're going in the same way as so many nations before us that cease to exist today. Now, I don't know when the Lord is going to come back. I don't know. He's going to come back suddenly at a time when we least expect it. He could come back tonight. He could come back 100 years from now. He could come back 1,000 years from now. I don't know. I see the signs. It seems like he's going to be coming back very suddenly, maybe even in our day. I don't know. But as far as the United States of America, since God in his infinite wisdom chose to put me here, chose to put you here, we pray for the United States of America. If you can, pick up the CD of this morning's study. That's what we talked about. Rather than whining and complaining about our leaders, and there's a lot to whine and complain, I admit, but we are to pray for our leaders. We are to pray for this country. Once again, Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face, then I will heal the land. And so we must be people who pray for this nation. But right now, this nation is going in the same direction as so many nations that God has destroyed before us. So where are we at? Where are we at? Well, tonight is a night of maybe these next six lessons of where are you at? Remember where are you at? It's what God asked Adam right after he sinned. Adam, where are you at? And Adam, the idea was to look and to see, I'm hiding in the trees. This time of the day that I would walk with God in the cool of the garden and never had a problem, never had an issue, now I find myself hiding in the trees. Why? Because sin has entered in. United States of America, good time to consider as we're heading into election a year from this uh, November. Where are we at? Well, we evaluate the president according to his term. The current president has been eight years. Where are we at? And our current president proclaims himself to be a Christian. You could debate that, but he, compl he, he complains. He proclaims to be a Christian. Where is this nation at? Has this nation been drawn closer to God? Or has this nation been drawn further away from God? This nation, biblically speaking, it's been drawn further and further away from God. United States of America, where are you at? Where are you at? Well, just as Ephraim was judged, we're headed in the direction of Ephraim. In chapter 28, verse 1, Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant, or the fatness of the valleys, to those who are overcome with wine. So what first thing he looks at, and again, now he, this is a warning to Jerusalem, we're looking at it as a warning to us, to the church, and we're seeing that 
those people, those leaders of that nation that have been judged, he's comparing them to a bunch of drunken leaders. That Israel would look to these Israel, Israel would look to these leaders, that Judah would look to these leaders, that we would look to these leaders, and how they act like drunken fools and the decisions that they make and the things that they do. And so what he's saying is these nations have been judged. Look at the leaders. And look at the silly, stupid things that they did. Foolish, just as you would sit there and you would look at a drunk and it would almost be comical if it wasn't so sad for the soul and see the foolish things that they do. Keep in mind that that which you are under the influence of, that will direct your actions. And so what he's saying is a drunk, a drunk is going to be under the influence of alcohol. He's using that as the example. But the world is what they are. What's the world under the influence? The flesh. They're directed by the flesh and the wills and the desires of the flesh, that which the devil uses. What are God's people under the influence of? We are to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Be under the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the tall tale sign of those who are under the leading of the Holy Spirit will be Jesus Christ glorified and the Word of God as that which radiates out from their lives and from their lips. And so let me ask you just kind of a little side light here. What kind of leader is the Pope? What kind of leader is the Pope? I mean, this has been on the news, and I think it's something that needs to be addressed and something that needs to be considered. And I'm not going to even give you my opinion. I just want to look at the reality of what kind of leader is the Pope. We're looking at leaders here. Is he under the leading of the Holy Spirit, or is he under the leading of the flesh? Or, you know, the flesh, you know, so many headings under the flesh, that which is right in man's own sight, and so on and so forth. Well, what is he filled with? Is he filled with the Holy Spirit? Is he filled with the flesh? Now, the things that I see that come out of his mouth, have you ever heard the word of God come out of his mouth? I've never heard the word of God. I, I've heard speech after speech after speech while he's been here in America. I mean, I, I, I wish to God that, you know, I, I don't know how God desires to use me, and I don't know what he's going to do in the future, but I wish I would have had that stage. I don't mean that. That sounds very arrogant. But just I wish somebody who is filled with the Spirit would have that stage, have that opportunity to speak of Jesus Christ and how he was crucified for the sins of the world. That we would see people repenting and we would see revival. This man addressed Congress. He addressed the United Nations. Look at the opportunity he had for the gospel. And did you hear the gospel come out? Did anybody? I mean, raise your hand if you did, because I didn't hear this. And so, again, what kind of leader is he? He's a leader that is directed according to these of which Isaiah is speaking of that is going to receive judgment. And the sight of God, he's just, a, just another drunkard and leader under the influence of that which is not the Holy Spirit. And I don't even mean to put him down as a person or anything, but I wouldn't want to stand before God if I was him. What is James chapter 3, verse 1 said, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you'll receive a stricter judgment. Now, the stricter judgment that he's speaking of is you live in a life based upon the things that you are supposed to be representing. He's supposed to be representing Catholics and Christians. And probably is representing Catholics, but doesn't represent what we believe. He doesn't represent the Bible. He doesn't represent the Scriptures. 
And so the, the reason I tell you that is because the Scriptures tell us that we are to warn when we see a leader that is not going in God's direction. And unfortunately, pray for him, but this man is not going in God's direction. He's leading people according to a lot of his good ideas that aren't really so good. So, a couple of things we see in this first verse, but also even in our leadership today, and again, leadership could be spiritual leadership, it could be secular leadership, is this crown of pride, or better translation is this proud crown. Samaria, they were a land of spacious skies. They were a land of ever waves of grain, of purple mountains' majesties above the fruited plains. Terry and I were there. We were in Samaria. Somebody was just asking me about it today. You think of Israel and you think of the deserts and you think of the rocks and all of that. I don't know if you saw our slideshow that we did a few months ago after we got back from Israel, but the northern part of Israel, Samaria, is not like that. It's very fruitful, fertile farmland. They, they grow crops. As we're driving through it, it's like driving through the driving through mid-America. There's just corn and there's grain and there's, you know, we don't even know what all these crops are, you know, lettuce and so on and so forth, but it's very fertile. It's very fruitful. And so it was a land to be desired. It had every advantage open to it. And we look at Washington and the advantages that Washington and the opportunity that Washington, the leadership that is represented has, but seems like they're always... They're always leading as a, a drunken fool. We look at Sacramento and look at some of the decisions that have come out of there as of late. And I don't care if it's Democrat or Republican. It seems like any, any more, any lately, any lately, seems like lately they're all the same. Same thing, drunken leadership. It's been said that there are really three parties in Washington. The Democratic Party, the Republican Party, and the Cocktail Party. And it seems like the Cocktail Party is the one that has been paid most attention to. Look at the drunks, and again, I'm not saying this to mock them, I'm, re, I'm re relaying it to the word that we're looking at, but look what the drunks in our country have decreed. They've decreed that bathrooms are no longer gender specific. What is the line of reasoning on that? I mean, I've heard it, and it's the same thing that would come from a drunk. Marriage has been laid waste. I mean, do we really need to go through the specifics on why marriage should be between a man and a woman. I can see their argument for unions and all of that other stuff. I don't agree with it, but I can see their line of reasoning for that. But I understand and I know what marriage is. It's spelled out for me here in the Bible. And citizens have the same rights as those who have come into this country illegally. These things make absolutely no sense to me. No sense. It's as if some sort of drunk, if you will, has dreamed them up. And so, verse 1 says what's going on here. They've got these crown of pride. Now, crown of pride, or proud crown, isn't necessarily pride as we think of pride, but it's something that they have been blessed with. And something, you know, here in this United States, you know, I'm proud of the United States, in, 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 at least in its uh, elementary form. I'm proud that we have freedoms. I'm proud that people have stood up and fought for them and, and all of these things, but... Here the prophet is warning, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. As beautiful as these crowns are, they are in the irreversible process of wilting away. 
America wilting away to the degree that we don't see America in the book of Revelation. Now, again, think about it. How can America not be seen in the book of Revelation? Now, don't come up to me afterwards and say, you know, this word, and you take every third word of chapter 17, and it spells out the U.S. You know, uh, God lays these things out very clearly, and the focus is in the Middle East. How can the United States not be mentioned even by name in the book of Revelation? I like to think that there's revival in the land, and the majority of the country gets raptured, but I have a feeling the majority of the country is going to be judged, and America will be a third-rate country at the time. Samaria, what happened to Samaria? It wilted, and it died, and it's gone. Jerusalem, it wilted, not completely dead. God has chosen it to persevere because God's got a plan for it, but spiritually speaking, it's dead, although it's just hibernating today. We live in a day where our rulers have become intoxicated with power, intoxicated with who they are, and intoxicated with the promises that they have bought into from the devil. And there's just no doubt about it. If you look at your Bible, you look at the things going on today, you see the truthfulness of it. Proverbs 29:18, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. We live in a time when there is no revelation, nor is there restraint, because the people have cast off biblical morals or God's restraint. And we are now a country that is of the flesh. We are a country that is primed for judgment. Verse 2 through 4. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of, of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot, and the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which an overseer sees, he eats it up while it is still in his hand. When God brings warning to a city, it's usually by the example of what he has done to another city. So again, Samaria. When God brings judgment upon a city, it's usually through a third party. God uses the sword. In this particular case, and we should relate to this, he takes that sword, that sword from the east. Back then, that third party, it was Assyria. Assyria was the sword of east that God used for judgment. Again, Assyria entered into the northern kingdom of, of uh, Israel, which is Ephraim, and they conquered that, and they enslaved it and cast it to the wind. Their next target was Judah. They invaded Judah. We'll see this in chapters to come. They were at the very doors, the very gates, if you will, of Jerusalem, but God supernaturally, as they turned, as they repented, as they got right with God, God supernaturally delivered them from Assyria. But here we're at the stage of a warning being given. And so again, we as the church, we need to wake up because the warning's towards the church. We need to wake up the warning's towards America. And so the idea here is just as surely as Hezekiah and his kingdom had an opportunity to change the course of the nation, and they did as they turned back to God, we have that same opportunity to change the course of the nation as we turn to the living God. We turn to the living God in the Word, preaching the Word, doing the Word, and coming before the Lord in prayer. We have that opportunity. And what is it going to take? It's going to take every member of the body of Christ. Not just Calvary Chapel, Ontario. Our prayer should be that it starts here. But we embrace these things and we see the reality of these things because these things are real. God's not just, he's not just throwing these things at us. It's something that happened way back in history. They have to be real today. 
uh, Thursday, I don't remember, oh, Thursday, Edison turned off our air conditioning, and so I was pronouncing curses in the back at Edison. Not really. But um, people were coming in, and I was just kind of checking it out to see if that's what it was. And this lady said, oh, pastor. I hadn't talked to her before. I've seen her a few times before. Usually comes on Thursday night. She goes, I just want to thank you. And I said, well, okay, for what? For, for teaching out of the Old Testament. Goes, so many churches, they don't teach out of the Old Testament. Well, this is the word of God. And every word is applicable to us. It's applicable to us, and it's real to us. It's God-breathed. And when Paul said to Timothy to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, he was talking about the Old Testament. That was their Bible of the day. And so we need to grasp on to the Old Testament scriptures and these judgments just as surely as history tells us that they came upon a nation, they'll come upon our nation as well. Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 3, And say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. And Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, to the hills, to the ravines, and to the valleys, seeing every nook and cranny. Indeed, I, even I, will bring a sword against you and will destroy your high places, destroy every place of ungodliness that is found. I will say today, it's pretty obvious, the sword from the east is Islam. It's that which we just celebrated, 911, as the sword came from the east into our country. Who is that that is flooding into Europe today? It's Islam, the sword from the east. Who is it that the USA is considering taking in? It's Islam. Who is it that they keep trying to make pretty and saying that these people are of peace? It's always Islam. And it's never the church. It's never the church. The church is always the bad guy. And it's always that which is not of the Lord that is dressed up to look at the good guy. What is the agenda of Islam? It's the destruction of the infidel. And guess what? You're the infidel. We're the infidel. It was, I saw it. Now, this was something that happened, I don't remember how long ago. I, I think it was maybe a year or two ago. Some people had prettied it up and make it look like it happened recently, but the point is still valid. There's a picture of some Islamic leaders presenting the Pope with a copy of the Quran, and he's bowing down before them and kissing it. And so, again, you've got this man who's looked at by the world as, a, as the leader of the Christian church. He's not the leader of the Christian church, but he's looked at, he's perceived as the leader of the Christian church. And here he is bowing down and kissing the Quran. Now, a lot of times I see these things, and I'm very skeptical skeptical about what I see on the Internet. I don't just buy into these things. They're, a lot of times it's just not true. And, but I, I looked it up, and it is. And it's very unfortunate. But again, we need to understand, and we need to see the reality of the spiritual attack as it exists. And we can blow all this off, just like they blew it off in Judah back then, all the way until Assyria entered the land and started gobbling up towns and cities and laying waste and killing people. Remember, now we've got this issue with the refugees, and I understand the plight of refugees, and I have a heart for refugees. I just have a little bit of a hard time when the majority of the refugees coming in are men of military age. That is really hard for me to understand. I, I just... I, I, I just would imagine that if there was an invading force coming into the United States of America, 
I would imagine the majority of men of military age would take up arms and defend their country to the death because that's kind of like what we've been in the past. But now we've got all of these coming in and it just makes me wonder. It just makes me wonder because here they are once again and they're coming and they're using the compassion of the West and I wonder, are they using it against us? Do you remember the Marielle boat lift? It happened in the 80s when Jimmy Carter was our president. He opened the gates to Cuban refugees. And so Castro gathered together 125,000 Cuban refugees. The majority of them were from Cuban prisons and insane asylums. The crime rate in Miami went through the roof when they came into our country. Castro played the pretty big joke on our president, but it was the people who paid the price. And again, I wonder if this is some sort of Trojan horse coming in. Is it? I don't know. But we need to be wise. We need to be understand. We need to have compassion. And again, there's Calvary Chapel Budapest that is ministering the gospel to a lot of these refugees, to women and children, because there is women and children. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's very possibly are being people converted. I don't know, but I do support what Calvary Chapel Budapest is doing. Don't get me wrong. We need to be wise. We need to understand the attack is there and it's real. Again, Judah did not take it to heart and this country entered in. These invaders entered in. The sword did come from the east and it wreaked destruction. And so when a nation's leaders are drunk, they're not so hard to overthrow. We saw that in the book of Daniel when Belshazzar was having that drunken party and his life was required of him that day. Verses 5 through 6. In that day, in that day of judgment, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Now, notice that there's a bit of a change here from crown of pride to the crown of glory. The crown of pride is that which comes from man. The crown of glory is that which comes from God. And so for everything that God does, he's got reason and he's got purpose. And what we see here in these two verses, well, in verse 5, to the remnant of his people, there's always a godly remnant. As long as God's got planning and purpose, there's always a godly remnant. Remember Elijah? He thought that, well, that, King Ahab and Jezebel, they've destroyed everybody. And God told them, no, they're, they're still a godly remnant have not bowed their knees to Baal. I've still got plans and i still got purpose. Even after the rapture of the church, they're going to start being born again believers and the godly are going to increase because God still has plans and purpose specifically for Israel. God never, ever gives up. We know Romans chapter 8, verse 28, about all things working together for the good well, we need to make it personal, but we also need to make it national and global. The things that we see in the news, those hard things, those things that seem so bad, God uses those things for the good, for those who are the called according to his purposes. God's in control. Again, things are not spiraling out of control. They're falling into place. This is all going according to God's timetable. But as for me, as for you, we need to be obedient to the great commission to which God has given us to go forth and to make disciples. And so now the attention shifts from Samaria, from Ephraim, through the prophet, and it comes to Judah. And the first thing we see is the Lord contends with the leaders from the south. 
But verse 7, verse 7 and 8, but they also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all the tables are full of vomit and the filth. and No place is clean. Again, the influence that affects what they do and how they are is of the flesh and not of the Spirit. And so just as truly as those leaders of Ephraim were a bunch of drunken fools, now God's through the prophet, is looking at Jerusalem and saying, look at these people. Look at the people who should be depending upon. I mean, for proper guidance in the Lord. Look at the priests. Look at the prophets. They're drunk as well. They're drunk with what? They're drunk with wine and all, but they're drunk with the wisdom that comes not from God, but the wisdom that comes from the world. And so you can look at uh, pulpits throughout this land, and there's pastors that should be preaching and teaching the truth, and what are they? They're drunk. They're drunk with fame. They're drunk with fortune. They're drunk with riches. They're drunk with pride, and they're drunk with everything that the world has to offer, and it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing concept. It's uh, 7 o'clock. It's actually about three minutes after 7. This is the height of the blood moon today. Rapture didn't happen. I just wanted to point that out. Facebook had pronounced and just so many people that the rapture was going to happen at the height of the red moon. I put a warning on my phone, an alarm for it to go off at 7 o'clock. Well, that, it's very possible that it did. Um, is anybody saved here so we know? <laughs> I just say that because we've got every wind of doctrine that always is going, well, I shouldn't say, well, yeah, every wind of doctrine, every wind of false doctrine is always blowing down the pike, and people are always making these predictions on things that God says not to make predictions of, and they're always doing all these things and getting the church all in an uproar, and so the church isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing. We're ooing and aahing with all of these miraculous things when we should be focused on that which God has called us to be focused upon. And so again, we've got these spiritual leaders that are doing such damage. Because see, God had reason and purpose. There was a progression here. And we see how the enemy has entered in and defiled the progression. God had specific order in how he would rule Israel. And first in line was the prophet. The prophet was the one through which the word of God was to enter into the people's minds, or at least enter into the priest. The priests were the ones who were to take the Word of God and they were to teach the Word of God. The potentate, or the king, he would be the one who would enforce the Word of God through the rules and the laws that were set up through the land. And then the people would be the beneficiaries of the Word of God. So there was prophet, there was priest, there was potentate, king, or people. Just to get another P word in there. And so that's how God's plan. So what, is hap what happens when the prophet and the priest are drunk? Drunk with the world and the things of the world? Then the word of God is not coming to pass. And so you need to see that's how it is today. That's how you need to evaluate whatever pulpit, even this pulpit, as you sit before it, hearing what is being said from it. Is it based upon the word of God? If it's not, then that person behind that pulpit is no different than a drunk who would be behind there. Notice how they have defiled their workplace. Instead of breathing out God's word and that which is clean and beautiful happening, verse 8, for all tables are full of vomit and filth and no place is clean. Secondly, the Lord then contends with their pride, verses uh, 9 through 10. 
Whom will he teach knowledge? And whom Now, <clears throat> verses 9 and 10 is the prophet quoting those who are coming up against him. This is not the prophet speaking about somebody. This is the prophet quoting those who are coming up against him. Whom will he, they're saying, whom will Isaiah teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Now verses 9 through 10 again, they're attacking the prophet for being simplistic and repetitious. Because he keeps telling them these things. Listen guys, just look, just look at Samaria and see what's happening. You guys are doing the same thing. Why would it happen? And after a while, they don't want to hear it anymore. And then now they're mocking him for saying that he's just become repetitious and this precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line is kind of in the form of a child's nursery rhyme. Again, they're mocking this prophet for the simplicity of his message. The verses that follow now are the prophet's responses, verses 11 through 13. For with the stammering lips in another tongue, he will speak to these people. The idea here is he's going to send Assyrians who speak another language, and then you'll get it. Verse 12, to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. And so he's saying that these things are going to happen. These stammering lips, as I said, this is the language of the Assyrians. These things are going to happen. I've given, to them, give them, given them to you in a very simplistic kind of a way so that you would understand, so that there would be no excuse, so that when they happen and you are judged, you will be held responsible. In 1 Corinthians, we're not going to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, well, yes, I will turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul uses this verse to make a point when it comes to the speaking of tongues. The speaking of tongues and the receiving of the gospel message. Not that the gospel message is preached through tongues. It's not. But tongues is a proof of the existence of the Holy Spirit, one of the proofs of the existence of the Holy Spirit, and it's something that should have been paid attention to. <clears throat> Excuse me. In chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, verse 20, Brethren, do not be children in understanding. So, just as the context back in Isaiah was speaking to people in an elementary way, Paul is encouraging the people that he's speaking to in Corinth to be mature believers. Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. And so, be mature. Understand when you see these things happening that this is God doing a work. Now, I think we need to visit that a little bit. We need to look at our world situation. We need to look at our domestic situation and see the evil things that are going on, the hard things, the weird things, the things from the drunks, and see that this is God's word coming to pass. Again, the signs of the times. Signs of the times. Times. Signs of the times. The signs of the times are pointing that we're getting closer and closer to the time that the Lord is going to judge 
We need to be mature about this. We need to be understanding about this. We need to take these things to heart so that we would not be judged along with those who are not of the Lord. What I mean by that is make your calling and election sure. Know that you are truly repentant and born again. Understand the commission that has been given to those who are such born again and move forward in what the Lord has given you. Then the Lord then contends with their false security, verses 14 through 19. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men, who rule the people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehoods we have hidden ourselves. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tired stone, a precious cornerstone, a tried stone, not a tired stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Also, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet, and hell will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the hidden place. Your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. As often as it goes out, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass over, and by day and night, it will be a terror just to understand the report. Now, what is this that they're talking about that they're going to be depended upon? Verse 15, because you have said we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol, which is the dwelling place of the dead, we are in agreement. Well, who are they talking about? Well, history, we look back at history, biblical and the books, and we understand that during that time of the Assyrian invasion, Judah, Jerusalem specifically, the king, he made a pact with Egypt. And Egypt was to be his protection. And so what they're saying is, we're not worried about Assyria. We got an agreement with Egypt. And so he's talking about anybody who's dependent upon the world and the things of the world. You have just made an agreement with death. You've just made a covenant with Sheol, the the abode of the dead. These people are going to be judged and done away with. And if that's your dependency, then you're in sad state of affairs. But behold, I'll lay a cornerstone. Cornerstone? Cornerstone would be the first stone set. Cornerstone would be a stone that was hewn to perfection. It was perfectly straight, and it was perfectly plumb. And so what you would do is you would set the cornerstone. Guess where you would set it? Corner. Good. All right, just want to make sure you're still with me. So you would set it, and you would lay it, get it completely flat. And so as you were going to be building the wall this way, you would put one post on one corner of the stone, one post on the other, and you would use that and line up your wall as you built it that way. So then you would have a perfectly straight wall. And then you would put a post here and a post here on the two corners because the stone is perfect. And you would look down that and you would lay your wall going that way and you would have a perfectly straight wall. You would use it kind of the opposite way and look up and that's how you would plumb your wall. And so as good as your cornerstone would be, as good as your building would be. As bad as your cornerstone was, that's how bad your building would be. And you only need to, I mean, just think about it. If you were making a building... 30 feet high, I I didn't do the math, and I'm not going to try and do it now, but if you're only off an eighth of an inch at the bottom, guess how high up you're going to be at 30 feet? A lot. 30 feet, I I would imagine, what, 24 inches? Would that work out for you mathematicians here? You'd be off 24, two feet. Two feet, if you were just off an eighth inch at the bottom, you'd be off two feet at, at the top. Just a little bit of worldly wisdom, it's going to set you way off. 
It's going to set you way off in what the prophet is saying. It's going to send you to hell because they're going to hell with their philosophies. They're not going to be able to do anything at all for you. Romans uh, 9.33, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Why? Because he's perfect. Why is it called a rock of offense, a stumbling stone? Because the cornerstone would usually stick out a little bit from the building. They would use it to measure down, and let's just say it stuck out four inches from the building. You would strike that perfect line and then measure back four inches. And so since it stuck out from the building, if you're walking along the building and you're not paying attention, you'd stumble on the cornerstone. You'd hit your shin on the cornerstone and you'd, you'd, bump, you'd stumble over. For some people, it's a rock of offense. Stupid cornerstone. For others, that's why the building is so great. That's why the church is so great. Because of the rock. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. For some people, it's a stumbling stone. Fourthly, the Lord will then contend with their presumptuous faith. Verses 20 through 22. For the bed is too short to stretch out on, and the covering is so narrow that one cannot wrap himself in it. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizium. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, and he may, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring it to pass his act, his unusual act. Now therefore, do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. Your presumptuous faith is what he's saying is, is as a bed that is too short. He's trying to sleep on it. We have a big couch at home and a couch that is kind of short. Sometimes I get on my nap time is not stuck on the short couch because there's a bunch of kids and everybody else on the other couch. And there's nothing uncomfortable as being on a couch that is too short or the covering so narrow that one cannot wrap himself in it. At night, trying to stay warm with covers but not having enough covers to cover you and how uncomfortable and insecure is that? That's what he's talking about. This presumptuous faith that they have, it will do them no good. Just as God supernaturally defeated the Philistines at Mount Perizium and the Canaanites in the Valley of Gibeon, so his judgments will come to pass. And then lastly, the Lord contends with their theological errors. Verse 23, Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin, it's a spice, and gather the cumin uh, and plant the wheat in rows and the barley in the appointed place and the spelt in its place? For he instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with the threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin, but the black cumin is beat out with a stick and the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever, break it with its cartwheel, or crush it with the horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellence in guidance. And so his point in all of that He's not going to be, let's just use the first one, he's not going to be breaking up the ground forever. The Lord is going to plant. And it is going to prosper. And we can sit here and talk about judgments upon judgments upon judgments, but we have not been appointed to wrath. We have the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that he has given us grace. But in that, we also need to see the responsibility that we have for obedience to the Lord. He's our wonderful counselor. He understands our struggles. He knows what we go through because he can relate. 
our wonderful counselor, he cares for us because the cross shows us as such. And our wonderful counselor, he has committed himself to us. Based upon those wonderful things, what kind of people ought we to be? What kind of people ought we ought to be? We ought not to be drinking the wine that the world is drinking. It's causing them to act foolishly in the sight of God. We need to keep that straight path, not veering to the right, not veering to the left, giving glory to the Lord in all that we do. Father, we just lift up things of this world. We lift up Islam. We lift up our political situation. We lift up the blood moon and all of these things. But Lord, we have your truth and we have your word. And Father, I pray for us that that truly would be enough. That's enough there, Lord, just to set our lives straight and to keep us busy for a lifetime as well. And so, Father, I pray that we would take these things to heart, that, Lord, as we gather to worship you, we would do so with all of our heart and with all of our soul, that we would be a people, Lord, who live your word, and we would be people who are quick to share it. We don't need to argue people into the kingdom of heaven. We don't need to get people on any other side other than sharing the gospel, that they would see that they're sinners, that they would repent and come into your glorious kingdom. It's very simple, Lord, what you have given us to do. May we keep it simple, pushing forward, being obedient, Lord, seeing, yeah, that there's going to be a judgment, but you have delivered us from that. There's more people you want to deliver. Use us for that purpose, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You all stand, please.